Welcome to today's workshop, sponsored by the Mellon Phyllis Actor OHEL Institute for Training. My name is Arlene Nettengoff, and I'm the director of the Institute. Our first speaker this morning is Dr. Ben Sion Saratskin. Dr. Saratskin lectures widely on issues related to psychotherapy with religious clients and has published frequently in both professional journals and Jewish periodicals. Early in his clinical career, Dr. Saratskin served as psychologist at the Youth Aliyah Psychology Clinic in Israel. Since 1985, he has maintained a private psychotherapy practice for adolescents and adults in Brooklyn, New York. In addition to his expertise as a clinical psychologist, Dr. Saratskin receives smicha from Nerisrol Yeshiva in Baltimore. He'll be speaking this morning on religious, individual, and family dynamics related to sexuality and Judaism. We appreciate his sharing his time and expertise with us today. Please join me in warmly welcoming Dr. Bencion Saratskin. Good morning. It's an uh, honor to be presenting today at this OL workshop together with uh, such uh, distinguished panelists. I'd like to begin uh, speaking, uh, in a broadly speaking, about the Torah perspective on boundaries and restrictions. As we all know, a significant portion of what we find in the Torah and the Talmud revolves around boundaries and restrictions. I just wonder if we, got, if we were able to get into the mind of the average religious youngster and see what is internalized image of the one who gave these restrictions. What is internalized image of God? Is it one of a powerful God with a small g who is really interested in his own needs and therefore, for some difficult-to-understand reason, needs us to do mitzvahs, to do good deeds, and for some mysterious reason is hurt when we, do, when we transgress? Or is it a loving God who is really concerned with our, our well-being and therefore has given us an owner's manual, just like when you buy a car, you get an owner's manual that helps us figure out how to uh, take care of the car in such a way that we have the maximum benefit and usage and pleasure from the car. Certainly the authentic Torah view is made clear in a Pasuk in Eiv, in Chatosa Matifalboi, in Sadakta Matitenloi. The Pasuk makes it very clear that if we do the right thing, if we do what's proper, Hashem gets nothing from it, and if we do the wrong thing, we do not hurt Hashem in any way. But of course, we have to be honest that there are many chazals, many sayings in the Torah and the Talmud that could certainly let, lead someone, certainly someone who is so predisposed because of vulnerabilities that we'll discuss later, to believe otherwise, to believe the first vision, to have the first vision of God. There are psukim in the Torah that speak about that when we bring a carbon, when somebody brings a sacrifice, brings a carbon, it brings nachas to Hashem, that sounds vaguely similar to bringing nachas to your parents. And then also there are psukim that there are midrashim that talk about how it pains Hashem when we transgress. So therefore, it's certainly easy for someone to believe that, that you know, that our mitzvahs, Hashem needs our mitzvahs and is hurt in some way by our averis. Rav Dessler explains this, and other Svarim talk about it. Rav Dessler has a lengthy discussion of this issue. And he says that all these expressions in Chazal are all need to be understood as metaphors. And not only that, because, he says, understanding the true reason in its, in its entirety is simply impossible for the human mind. 
we're not capable of understanding what, what the point of it all, why Hashem needed to create us, even though we know and all that, but to really truly understand it is beyond the human mind's ability to comprehend. And therefore, we need to use metaphors. It's important to use metaphors, in order that we could somehow comprehend it within the limits of the human mind. However, Rav Dessler emphasizes, at the very same time, it's imperative that we know that understanding those Mishalim literally is apikursis, is sacrilegious, because in no way does Hashem need us to do the mitzvahs or is hurt in any ways when we transgress. Unfortunately, this part is very rarely taught, and therefore when youngsters hear these Mishalim, they do take him literally. And therefore what ends up happening is, I think most religious youngsters end up with a, a perception of God that is closer to what, to what the pagan, uh, the, the ancient pagan gods or the ancient people who believed in the pagan gods is more similar to their perception than to that of authentic Yiddishkeit. I find very, and the, people, if you know the history of religion, the, the pagan gods were totally disinterested in morality. Judaism was the first, pers- the first group, the first religion that came up with this idea that God has any interest in morality. And they were just powerful bullies. The reason we had appeased gods because they had the power to beat us up like a big bully. And they're very powerful and live forever. So therefore they had to be appeased. Uh, I often have Bachrim ask me, uh, especially around El time, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, when they're frustrated in their attempts to improve themselves. And they, they say, what does Hashem want from me? My usual answer to them, as far as I know, he doesn't want anything from you, but he probably wants an awful lot for you. This would be somewhat similar to uh, sometimes patients ask their therapists the same question in, in the same uh, situations of frustration, and they say, I don't know what you want from me. And of course, there too, the proper answer would be, I want for you, not from you. Although, being that therapists are human, I think the latest research uh, shows that. So, therefore, in a certain sense, you want something from your patients too, because, of course, we feel better if we are successful in ha- helping our patients, so we want something from them too. Hopefully, our main motivation is wanting for them. But certainly, I think we can be pretty fairly uh, safe to believe that Hashem doesn't need anything from us. He only wants for us. I'd like to also say a few words about the Torah perspective and the threats to maintaining boundaries. Rav Chaim Shmulevitz has an, a, a fascinating schmooze on the Torah perspective on boundaries. Uh, Rav Chaim speaks about how the mitzvahs that Hashem, all the rules and regulations in the Torah, our boundaries, our uh, framework within which, if one lives in, and acts within that framework, that is, uh, makes it very likely that we will have a productive and meaningful and, and happy life. And therefore, the Pasuk in Ve'eschanan says that, You're not allowed to add to the mitzvahs, you're not allowed to, you're not, you're not allowed to deduct from the mitzvahs, because that is the proper foundation, the proper boundary the proper safeguards that we need within which to function. Interestingly, Rav Chaim points out, the end of the Pasuk says, You have seen what happened with the the Avedazara, the idol worship of Pa'ar. What is the connection to adding and subtracting from mitzvahs to specifically the Avedazara of Pa'ar? Rav Chaim explains that, as the Gemara talks about it at length, that the Avedazara of Pa'ar was very, very unique. All Avaidazars, all idol worship, required a certain protocol. That's why they had priests to make sure you follow the protocol. The essence of Pa'ar was no boundaries. There was nothing. You could do it anything you feel like. In fact, you could even degrade the Avaidazara, and that would be considered 
uh, the highest form of worship. And therefore, that is the danger of pa'ar. The pa'ar is no boundaries. Now, any breach, if, because as Rav Chaim explained, as we mentioned, that, that the mitzvahs are boundaries uh, within which we need to operate. So therefore, any breach in the boundary would, of course, undermine the integrity of the whole fence, of the whole boundary. As they say that the, the, the uh, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. So therefore, we can understand that if you deduct anything from the mitzvahs, if, if, then, of course, it endangers the security of the whole area. Interestingly enough, adding to mitzvahs, without being clear that it's a chumrah, but adding it as if it's the mitzvah itself, creates the same danger. As the Gemara brings a proof from, from Chava in, in Gan Eden, when she incorrectly stated that Hashem commanded not to touch the Eitzadas, when in fact he only said not to eat from the Eitzadas, and that was the beginning of her downfall. Rav Chaim also points out a fascinating concept that I think is very uh, appropriate for this discussion. He says that the very same concept that could really so much promote spiritual growth, the concept of godless Adam, of the unlimited potential of mankind, that very same concept in its pathological form, i.e. narcissism, undermines civilized society. Because I think as we all know with, when we work with people who have serious problems with boundary violations, they all very much agree that there should be boundaries. It just doesn't apply to them because they're above the boundaries. They don't need it. They're above the rules. And certainly any consistent deviation from boundaries, especially feeling above the rules, is a threat to the integrity of civilized society, which is the essence of Pa'ar. Interestingly enough, overly rigid boundaries is also a problem. And Rav Chaim points this out by the, the, the special rule, the special dispensation by Eishas Yifas Tayar, during wartime, if a, 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 if a soldier sees a woman who he wants, who normally would be forbidden to him under certain circumstances, she becomes mutter to him then. He's allowed to marry her with certain qualifications. Why? Because the Torah recognizes that during wartime, as we see in history, that even supposedly civilized people could, do, could, could, uh, act with, could uh, do terrible atrocities during wartime. So therefore, the regular rules... We have to be more flexible with the regular rules. We find that even in engineering, you know, if, uh, build, uh, skyscrapers are built so that they sway in the wind a certain amount because if you would make them overly rigid, it would, be, it would endanger the integrity of the building. It's, psychologically speaking, it's the same. You know, it's very popular today to have zero-tolerance uh, policies in schools and workplaces, zero-tolerance zero for sexual harassment, for, for drugs, for violence, for, uh, for weapons. And very often, as they often have in the news these ridiculous stories like the honor student who was recently suspended from school for the zero tolerance to weapons because he was an honor student, a Boy Scout, and he had a, a Boy Scout tool, you know, with a fork, knife, and, and, and spoon in the trunk of his car in the parking lot, and he was suspended for the zero tolerance for weapons, and which endangered his application to West Point, which was his dream. I think after it hit the news, I think they sort of retracted that. Um, also, they have, uh, uh, you know, uh, a nurse once uh, almost got fired because she gave a, a, a student a uh, Tylenol uh, without the parent's permission, the zero tolerance for drugs. Um, for some reason, it's okay to send a girl to, uh, for an abortion without the parent's permission, but not, God forbid, Tylenol. But whatever it is, so zero tolerance policies very often lead to distorted type of situations because one has to have some flexibility. In fact... 
But the main point is there has to be some sort of structure, and that's what Rav Chaim points out, that even by the Eishas Yifas Tayar, even this dispensation that we have for, uh, um, for the soldiers during wartime, it has to be, this, it's not just, there's no boundaries then, there's special rules, it's a very complicated procedure using this dispensation of Eishas Yifas Tayar, there are many OSHA forms you have to fill out and other such type things, because the idea is there has to be some sort of boundaries, always has to be there, it can never be without boundaries. So the idea is that any time you have uh, um, restrictions that are overly rigid and experienced as deprivation and oppression, this very often creates, induces a feeling of wanting to throw off the oppressive yoke. Many people who grew up in very rigid uh, environments very often, in their minds, the boundaries become associated with just such negative feelings of oppression that they, even when they get older, they can't even have self-discipline. In their own minds, the distinction between self-discipline and externally imposed discipline doesn't exist, and they're very often very frustrated trying to achieve things that require self-discipline. Rav Dessler has a very famous muscle that he uses when people try to, repress, to overcome uh, negative impulses purely through oppression and repression. And he, he, he compares it to pressing on a spring, on a kvitz, on a spring. And the, the harder you push on it, the harder it pushes back. And therefore, based on this idea, uh, Duster's student, Rav Chaim Friedlander, he writes a similar idea that even when you're trying to uh, work on a negative, on overcoming a negative impulse, you should always frame it in a positive terms. He gives an example, working on Shmir Sinai, not looking in inappropriate places. He says that you should frame it in your mind, not as, oh, I'm really bad, or I'll be punished if I do, if I do this, but how much better off I'll be, how much it will be beneficial for me if I, if I don't do it. Uh, Ramatusio Salman made a similar comment often when he makes this comment, when people ask him uh, where to take their, when they talk about taking their children on vacation or going somewhere, Chalamayid, and very often they feel that there are certain places they feel is inappropriate for their family to go to. And he always warns them. He says, okay, he could understand why some families may feel this form of entertainment might be inappropriate for them. He said, but you have to be careful that religion doesn't become framed in your child's mind in negative terms. Oh, we don't do that. Oh, we're not allowed to do this. We don't do that. You have to find positive things that they can enjoy so it should be framed in positive terms. Interestingly enough, there's actually been studies recently uh, of the, regarding smoking cessation or weight loss, you know, what is, more, what is a more effective way? When they have a campaign, an advertising campaign for smoking cessation, should you frame it, should you emphasize the negative consequences of smoking or emphasize the positive consequences of stopping to smoke? And there have been many studies that show that framing in positive terms is much more effective. Of course, the government doesn't pay much attention to these studies, and therefore a new law was passed that the packs of cigarettes have to have pictures of deteriorating lungs on it, which according to the studies will probably make it worse because in order to smoke, you have to be in denial, and the anxiety of seeing these pictures just raise your denial level. And this is, in general, one of the problems when, when you try to control behavior emphasizing negative consequences. Uh, many, many educators and therapists, you know, like to emphasize this in, even in child rearing, you know, to, there has to be consequences. One has to be careful because sometimes that could backfire. The negative consequences can sometimes uh, make the underlying problem even worse. A related issue is the concept of, of ol, of a yoke. You know, we talk about a bar mitzvah boy going, nichnas el ha mitzvah. He enters the yoke of mitzvahs. I think the mental image most of us have of a yoke is, you know, the yoke of slavery. Uh, Ramatusio Salman has a fascinating discussion about 
uh, that one can look at a yoke, it's based on a zayar and something that's written by Rav Chaim Golazhin, where a yoke can be seen as a burden and can be seen as a tool. If oxen have to plow a field, and if you wouldn't have a yoke and you would just tie the rope from the plow to, around the oxen, it would be extremely painful for them to do. The, the yoke, by e- evenly distributing the weight across the whole animal, across the ox or the oxen, makes it possible for them to, uh, to, uh, makes it possible for them to uh, plow the field with, rel- with relative ease. A more, uh, more contemporary example would be a hiker, who, who, a nature lover who likes to go into the woods and to, the, to hike, but he needs to take a lot of equipment with him. If he has a professional backpack with a rigid frame, he can carry an awful lot uh, so that he can enjoy his, his camping trip. Uh, you know, hopefully he sees this, doesn't look at it as a burden, but he looks at it as a tool to help him achieve what he wants. So certainly children who grow up in an environment where they're able to comprehend and, and are able to experience the restrictions and limitations as things that are, help them achieve their own goals or are helpful to them, rather than an oppressive yoke, are likely to accept the Omach Shamaim in a more positive way. Certainly, uh, parents who frequently answer because I told you so is probably not going to work along these lines. I'd like to speak a little bit about uh, the clinical implication of excessive feelings of guilt and shame. Since no one is perfect, and ain't tzaddik v'aretz ha'shayasa toivu la'yechta, everybody transgresses on occasion, so therefore an important goal in Chinuch is to help children develop the ability to deal with being human and transgressing in a healthy way, to use guilt in a healthy way, there's actually such things, you could use guilt in a healthy way, and not to be overburdened, not to be overwhelmed with paralyzing guilt. Uh, I think we all know that overwhelming guilt and paralyzing shame play a significant role in the emotional distress of many religious youngsters. Rav Dessler writes that shame is caused by the internal feelings of dissonance, and this has the power of promoting tshuva. But very strong feelings of, or overwhelming feelings of dissonance can bring the person to rebel against Hashem in order, he says, to silence his conscience by force. It's a very interesting concept. This is somewhat similar to the idea of somebody who smokes and sees these terrible pictures on the pack of cigarettes it might actually cause them to smoke more. Rav Chaim Shmulevitz also writes very frequently that psychological turmoil from, the overwhelming, from overwhelming guilt is more dangerous to one's spirituality than the transgression itself. As we all know, the sexual arena is, prone, is especially prone to feeling as overwhelming guilt and shame. One of the reasons for this is because one doesn't know, these are things that usually happen in private, and one doesn't know what goes on by others, and it's very easy for a youngster to believe that he is the only one in the world who does these things. Uh, you know, other type of equally egregious transgressions, like speaking Lashon Hara, I think we can all agree is pretty serious. Certainly, if we learn Chafetz Chaim, we'll see that. And yet, in my whole practice of almost 40 years, I don't recall anybody coming with overwhelming guilt for speaking Lashon Hara. Maybe unfortunately, but that's the way it is. Uh, likewise, uh, speaking in shul, if you ever read some of those placards, they hang in shul about speaking during davening, some very serious things written there. Again, I don't recall ever having a patient coming because of overwhelming guilt. But when it comes to sexual things, since they happen in private, it's very easy for a person to believe that he is expected to be perfect in that area and believe that he's the only one who isn't. Revolva addressed this issue of sexual guilt in an Israeli medical journal put out by Laniata Hospital in Netanya about 40 years ago. 
uh, was a, he wrote an extensive article about uh, adolescence and mental health or something. I don't remember the exact title. I have a copy of it. But in, in that article, he writes the following. The original Hebrew is in the handout, but um, this is my translation. The difficult period of adolescence is fertile grounds for the development of excessive guilt feelings. Masturbation is a serious transgression. The vast majority of young people stumble in this area and are, and are incapable of totally overcoming this problem. The result is guilt feelings. This is a place for proper guidance from rabbis and educators. Rabbis are not authorized to permit that which is forbidden, but they can guide, reassure, and encourage the youngster to develop patience with himself. In addition, promoting an active social life and introducing the youngster to the noble treasures of Torah will gradually bring him to forget to, trans to, to transgress. Rather than a constant battle, which is for naught, a positive toiling in Torah and social activity will bring him to gradually wean himself off. This is the approach that is proper for our times. This is reminiscent of what Ravdessa writes, that press, fighting it directly is like pressing on a spring. But when you fight it indirectly, when you deal with the, the surrounding issues that make a person less liable to seek an escape, that is the more productive approach. This is reminiscent of also something I read a story once in the Chazanish, that a very, very distinguished mashgiach once asked the Chazanish for advice how to overcome the taiva for eating, the, the impulse to want to eat. And uh, the Chazanish told me he really has no idea how to do that, but he's pretty certain that the Ksaisachayshin didn't chop his spilus from Kugel. In other words, the great Torah sage, the Ksaisachayshin, the, the, the didn't get overwhelmed with the excitement of eating Kugel. I don't know if you've ever been in a shul by a Kiddush when they bring out the Kugel, uh, I think that's the contrast he's looking at, right? So he, now, he didn't say that the Ksaisachayshin worked on himself not to care for Kugel, it's just because he was much more excited about other more meaningful things that Kugel just didn't hold such an important place in his mind. But Chaim Valojin also highlights the spiritual danger of excessive sexual guilt in a very dramatic statement in the Kester Reich, which is a cipher that's published in the back of the Siddur Hagra. There's a lot of fascinating things in there. And in, that, in this, uh, this uh, cipher, the Chaim Valojin criticizes those who quote from the Zayar regarding the severity of masturbation, yet neglect to quote this, the end of the very same Zayar where he writes the Torah study corrects this transgression. In that Sefer, there's a footnote, there's a section called Ole Chaim, and he brings there an extraordinary footnote from the Shalah. And again, my translation, he writes the following. Those stringent ones, Hasidim, who are stringent and state that there is no correcting this transgression, they are the ones who induce an increase of sinning among us and cause people to distance themselves from Hashem. Since a transgressor, when he hears that there's no repentance for this transgression, will abandon all attempts to improve himself. These stringent ones cause the Shechina to go into Golis, and rather than be called Hasidim, stringent ones, they should more properly be called Chaserim, lacking ones, and their punishment will be very severe. And just a last quote very briefly, Rav Dester writes the following, and I quote, The transgression of wasting seed is very serious, and how much more so is the seriousness of wasting precious time. I think our surprise reaction to that Kavuchaymer is shows, highlights how we perceive sexual infractions on a different plane than equally egregious transgressions. Okay, so a certain amount of these problems come about from lack of knowledge, lack of proper education, and lack of proper understanding of these issues. But I think there's something deeper that underlies some of these misunderstandings. I think there's certain family dynamics that 
are prone to creating a vulnerability to overwhelming guilt in general and sexual guilt in particular. Certainly, never discussing sexuality with one's children is obviously problematic. We don't expect children to keep Shabbos without ever discussing Shabbos with them. Uh, there's a very fa- fascinating quote in a book that was recently published called Child and Domestic Abuse, Torah, Psychological and Legal Perspectives by Dr. Daniel Adenson. And he writes there the following. It's a great book, not only because I have a chapter in there, but it's just in general a great book. <laughs> and he writes a quote in the introduction. He writes the following quote. I once mentioned to the Novominsky Rebbe that Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky had stated that children should be educated about sexual matters at the age of 16. His reply was, it's too late for children today. This was written 25 years, this was said 25 years ago. Even some eight-year-olds know more than I do. I think in, in, discussing, in discussing these issues with children, I think it's very important for a child to really understand that the, the benefits for the child himself or herself by maintaining sexual boundaries. I think in the minds of many youngsters, all these boundaries, certain sexual areas, is simply a plot to deprive them of pleasure. They really have no idea. They really feel somehow, again, if they violate these rules, they're hurting Hashem in some way, and if they keep the rules, they're keeping Hashem happy. I don't think they have any clue that this has some benefit for themselves. I'm not sure if we'll have time to discuss it today, but there was Svarim that discussed these things. There's a a fascinating uh, English cipher from, um, I think it's in the handout, uh, it's called, um, I don't remember offhand, but it's in there, there's, there's a Mishkan Yisrael in Hebrew, and there's a, a by Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Friedman, Peretz, Rabbi Peretz Friedman, Avram Peretz Friedman, I think, has a fascinating book that discusses some of these issues. Uh, but regarding the issue of discussing these issues with children, uh, there's a, a book that was recently published by Sarah Diamant called Talking with Children About Intimacy, A Guide for Orthodox Jewish Parents, one doesn't have to agree with everything she says there, but, you know, but certainly she has great ideas about uh, discussing these topics. I list the book there. It's also in the handout. So I think that the excessive guilt, again, doesn't come simply for lack of knowledge. It's also what the child's, the, the image of Hashem that the child has, which is formed in the child's home. There's a lot of, uh, there's, there's research evidence that points out that the children's image of God is, shaped by their experience with the earliest caregivers. God is the ultimate, ultimate authority figures, the, the authority figures that the child recognizes most closely and from the youngest age is with parents. If parents are unreasonable, punitive, unpredictable, unforgiving, hypercritical, focused on their own needs, insensitive to the child's needs, we shouldn't be shocked if that's their image of God also. And then their image of God resembles the vindictive gods of the ancient idol worshipers. And it's not shocking then when they feel overwhelming guilt and even more important, terror. They feel terror because they can't believe that God will cut them any slack regardless of the circumstances and they think that they're doomed. That's the expression I hear from my patients very often, I'm doomed. And this is for this reason. And regardless of what extenuating circumstances they may have had, they can't believe that they're not doomed. In contrast, parents who are reasonable, forgiving, supportive, and focused on their children's emotional needs create a similar image of God and that helps these children prepare, that helps them handle these guilt feelings, even if the parents didn't discuss it with them. Although, ideally, the parents should discuss these issues, but if a child already as a child has a template how to deal with his imperfections, with his humanity, with his emotional needs in a healthy way, right, not, overly, not, overly, uh, not being overwhelmed with guilt in, a, in an unhealthy way, so then he's able, he at least has a framework, he or she has a framework in which to place these events, even sexual issues, 
even if the parents didn't discuss it with them, but he's le- less, they're less likely to get overwhelmed with paralyzing guilt. Same thing if parents overreact to minor infractions, then this can often cause what they call the saint or sinner syndrome, where if you can't be a saint, you just might as well be a sinner. There's no gray areas. And you get these, these, these strange clinical situations, as I've had more than once, where a, 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 married man, a, young, man, a young married man who frequents prostitutes explains that since he can't uh, stop himself from masturbating, he might just as well go to prostitutes. And he was shocked with the idea that perhaps one is worse than the other. Likewise, a young fellow who grew up in a home where, where uh, watching movies was absolutely forbidden, but uh, abusing children somehow didn't, wasn't so egregious, uh, when he grew older and started watching movies, in his mind, uh, there was absolutely no difference in watching what, I guess, I don't know, what's uh, today considered a clean movie, but a relatively clean movie, and, 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 and watching pornography. totally did not see what there's any difference at all, and if he's watching one, he might as well watch the other. I always have this mental image regarding this issue. Imagine you have these, these, these two children, these two youngsters, who are both they're decent students, they do, they do well in school, they're well-behaved, they come home after a long day in yeshiva, and they enjoy playing, let's say, a baseball game on the computer. And they're sitting very much engrossed in the game and having a great time, and their fathers walk by, these two kids, right? And, and one father comes by and looks and says, uh, wow, this is just a fascinating game. How does this work? And he takes an interest in it and really happy that his son has a way to unwind after a long day in school. Perhaps after a while he may suggest that after he plays for a certain time, maybe he should go out and play outside a little, get a little fresh air. But the general feeling the kid gets is he's doing something right and, and his father's happy for him that he's able to enjoy himself. Then you have, in contrast, you have the other father in the same situation who walks by. And in the old days, they, well, actually before the days in computers, they would say it in Yiddish, Nachamal the computer. Right? Again, that all you can do all day is sit on the computer. Don't you have anything to, useful to do with your life? Shut the computer this minute and go outside and play. Okay, now you have these two children. Now, let's say both of them, somewhere in the next, fast forward a few weeks, they're on the computer and somehow they stumble across pornography. Okay, now the first child will get just a little bit more pleasure for, for, for a lot more guilt, while the second child will get a lot more pleasure for a little bit more guilt. If you figured out the economics of it, you could understand why he might be more drawn or be, find, find it easier to get attracted to that or to go in that direction than the other child. Likewise, when parents ignore the mitigating circumstances I mentioned before and they take no consideration for the situation, if a, if a parent finds out that the child was uh, thrown out of class in English, or the English teacher threw him out of class, you know, so I think wiser parents try to find out the circumstances of what exactly happened. The, t- the parent might find out that three-quarters of the class was thrown out, that this teacher does this every day because he really doesn't know how to teach. The, the reaction of the parents should be very different if it's a great teacher, all the kids love, has, usually has no problems with the kids, and this particular kid got thrown out of class. But some parents would react the same. Uh, I, I think that certainly in, in, in previous generations, that's what you came home and said the teacher hit you, got smacked again for, being, for having caused the problem, regardless of the circumstances. So certainly... Uh, a person, a child who grew up in that environment will assume that Hashem does the same. Some extreme examples of this, or perhaps not even so extreme, or it's certainly not unusual, um, that I remember I recall a parent, a father who found out that his son had been molested over a half a year period, two years prior. I think the child was 16 at this time when he found out, which certainly explained his deterioration over the past two years. The father's major concern, he told me, is that the child should not use this as an excuse to not to function on full level. 
He was much less concerned about the emotional impact and, you know, how his child could be helped. He just was afraid he was going to use it as an excuse, in his words. Another parent, another father who found out that his child was molested by an adult uh, years previous, you know, a few years pre- prior, uh, he, had a, he was very mystified. He asked me a very innocent, he asked me very innocently, he asked me, I don't understand why his year Shemaim didn't prevent him from continuing doing this with his, with his older person. And I heard once uh, a lecture by a rabbi who was talking about molestation in the community, and he mentioned uh, about a, um, a young fellow who uh, was molested at a young age by a brother who was a few years older than him. This went on for a few years until the younger one got older, and he put an end to it. And the younger one asked the, 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 this younger boy who got, was older by now, he asked the rabbi how he could do tshuva for what he did. And the rabbi answered, well, the fact that you put an end to it means that you already did tshuva. Instead of telling you you're the victim, your brother needs to do the tshuva. So uh, when, 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 when a person feels, I think believing that Hashem expects of you the same level of, of adherence to the rules, in, regardless of the circumstances, results in overwhelming guilt, and I think is a significant factor in children not wanting to take responsibility, youngsters not wanting to take responsibility for what they did because it just seems totally overwhelming. It seems totally impossible. So if they can't take, any, if they can't take full responsibility, they don't want to take any responsibility. I, I, I have an image of, you know, if you would walk by a, 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 a basketball court and you would see a team of 18-year-olds playing against a team of 14-year-olds, right? So, so uh, you, you would be, you'd be disgusted. What, what are they, taking advantage of these young kids? It's such an unfair game. Then you get closer and you find out that the older kids need to get ten baskets for every one basket the younger kids get. Okay, so then you see it's fair. So I think many kids, and I think this is often a, a, a cause of, of kids rebelling, going off the derech, because they're angry enough, they're upset enough at Hashem for having caused them to, having to grow up in a home where they suffered abuse. But to add to that, now they're expected to perform as if they never had any abuse. Right? They're usually told this either overtly or covertly. Or the expression... The, the uh, kids are told, when there's a will, there's a way, which actually there is no such chazal, but it's a different story, not for now. And, and, and this is what they're told. So they're told, regardless of what happened to you, and any son you can have, you can overcome. Totally misunderstood. If you look in the Rishayim, it's totally misunderstood. It's, only, you know, it's like telling somebody who has a migraine headache, okay, so you have this Nisayan, so go to Satan and learn as if you didn't have a headache. That would be absurd. The Nisayan might be to learn as much as you can or learn a little bit or take off only three days instead of a long weekend, you know, if you already took off. So because they believe that, that the circumstances, and if they grew up in such a home where circumstances were never mitigating factors, then this is what they believe about Hashem, and therefore they suffer from overwhelming guilt. Uh, and the truth, of course, uh, this also revolves to of Dessler's uh, idea of Nekudas HaBechira, that everybody's Bechira level depends on their circumstances. And there's a fascinating mabit in the Beis in the Kim. He says that, um, he asks a question, how could one do tshuva today? We know that bringing karbanas, sacrifices, are an integral part of tshuva. And we don't have karbanas today, so how could somebody do tshuva today? So the mabit explains, well, the reason why we don't have, we don't have karbanas today is because we don't have a Beis HaMikdash. So if we don't have the, the spiritual influence in our myths from the, from the, from the Beis HaMikdash, our averes don't count as bad either. The Averis are not so bad, therefore we don't need such a big tshuva. Okay, now for many kids this idea would be totally foreign and unbelievable. Now, I think when, when a child gets inadequate emotional nurturance, this creates many types of vulnerabilities. First of all, it makes a child very vulnerable to very 
scary chazals, chazals that could be very frightening if they're understood literally. A simple example. we all probably all familiar with a chazal that says that if somebody embarrasses his friend in public, then he has no ilam haba. I don't know if you ever met anybody that never ever did such a thing. If you do, I'd like to be introduced. Uh, probably somebody, everybody did at least once, unfortunately. And imagine if somebody believes, it's easy for him to believe, that's it, everybody's doomed. It's, some people, they grew up in such an environment that that's believable to them. Of course, I think kids who grew up in healthier environments understand intuitively, without maybe knowing, that it probably isn't meant literally, and they will probably guess something like the Rambam. When the Rambam brings this down, he says, Harogel Bekach, somebody who does this habitually. That's the proper understanding of, of, of this Chazal. Likewise, in the sexual arena, uh, the, the Kitzur Shulchan Aruch brings what is brought down in the Shulchan Aruch, that masturbation is tantamount to murder. Now again, kids who grew up in an unhealthy environment would very easily assume this to be meant literally. Uh, the uh, proper understanding as it's in the Shulchan Aruch on the side, in the Beis Shmuel, he brings a rayev based on a Sefer Hasidim, that this is not, cannot possibly be meant literally. It's just emphasizing the seriousness of the transgression. But the underlying error, again, is the believing that we do mitzvahs and avoid averis for Hashem's sake. And therefore, like, like the ancient pagan gods, and therefore, it's very easy for somebody to believe that if he transgressed in any which way, regardless of the circumstances, he's doomed. Another problem is growing up with not sufficient consideration for one's emotional, uh, emotional needs is it becomes a tremendous disconnect between emotional intimacy and, and, and uh, the, the, the physical intimacy. In, in contemporary society, in a way that I think that has infiltrated our ranks also, sexuality has been totally separated from intimacy. And I think it's for this reason that, that you find even very religious boys, young men, who when they date are, are, are totally obsessed about the girl's looks. It's, it's something beyond amazing how, how far this can go. And even people who consider themselves very spiritual and very much involved in spiritual growth, you know, sincerely, still, when it comes to this issue, they're, they're obsessed with, with, with chitzenius, with superficial issues. And the reason is, my understanding of it is, because this is how they grew up understanding that, that like they say in brisk, it's two dinim. There's two separate issues that, that don't intersect, right? You have, you have spirituality, which, of course, is very important and takes up a very important part of their life. But for God, for some reason, in his infinite wisdom, decided there should be a physical element to intimacy in marriage. Okay, so that's a different thing. That goes on a t t completely, different, completely different track. So that is totally physical. That, that you have to look at totally physically. So if you're going to buy a piece of art, you want to make sure it's gorgeous. You know, it's beautiful. It's totally, they don't understand the connection between emotional intimacy and, and, physical, and physical intimacy. In fact, uh, sometimes when I deal with such young men, I bring up the question, uh, so let's say you do find that, that uh, girl that meets your unbelievable criteria. What happens when you're both 40? And usually they get traumatized. They never thought of that issue. Uh, you know, maybe they wish they were movie stars and can trade in for a new model every few years, but, uh, you know, they say, oh, my gosh, I never really thought of that. Oh, my gosh, what does happen? And it's totally unbelievable to them that if you actually have true emotional intimacy, then, then this is simply not an issue. Oh, uh, the name of the book, uh, okay, we'll get to that in a second. Uh, oh, I, I find this, this split between emotional intimacy and, and, and physical intimacy, uh, shockingly, sometimes even happens with professionals. I think the idea um, of, of recommending watching pornography as a way of dealing with inadequate emotional intimacy in a couple or using it as a, as a uh, cure 
quote-unquote, to homosexuality, is, is unbelievable. You're using the ultimate of non-intimacy to solve an intimacy problem. It's, it's fascinating that somebody came up with that idea, and I think it's a total misunderstanding of, in, of in, both physical and emotional intimacy. Uh, but when, when this happens here with, uh, with uh, um, the split of emotions with, with, with uh, or just inadequate emotional, uh, um, uh, the, uh, inadequate emphasis on the parents or understanding of the child's emotional well-being came out just recently. The other day, a patient told me, I have full betachen that Hashem will provide for me. I just think it's going to be without consideration for my emotional needs. And this was exactly, because he told me that's what his father, his father, totally clueless about his emotional needs. In fact, it was incredibly abusive of his emotional needs. But it, whenever he would complain to his father, he said, well, I take such good care of you. I give you money. I do this and I do that. So this is exactly his vision of Hashem. And that's why he lives in terror, because he knows Hashem will take care of him. And he even sees how Hashem has taken care of him and many good things have happened to him. But it's no, no connection to his emotional needs. So in conclusion, I want to say that if children grow up, with an accurate and healthy understanding of the Torah view of boundaries, and they have an emotionally healthy family experience with boundaries, there will probably be less boundary violations. Thank you. But do you have any questions? Yes. How many can masturbation by young children? How what? I didn't hear the first. Yeah. Yeah. What about it? I don't really deal with elementary age children in my practice. So, uh, you know, certainly telling them that, first of all, the same idea of looking what's going on around the child. You know, like any, like, like any, uh, like any um, uh, symptom that a parent comes with. A parent comes with a child stole or a child lied, right? So you want to know, first of all, there was a story with Rav Shach that they came to him the child stole, was stealing. A bacha was stealing in the dormitory. So they came to Rav Shach. They wanted to throw him out. He says, Rav Shach said, before you do anything, find out if his father gives him enough money. And he said over a story about some kid who was stealing. The father gave, was very cheap. He was a wealthy man, but gave very little money. And he you know, yelled at the father and told me, better give him more money. He says, if he's stealing, even though he has no money, then he might have a more serious psychological problem, in which case the yeshiva might not be able to handle it. So first of all, you have to find out does this child need more? Does, first, does he see inappropriate things at home? Sometimes the parents act without appropriate boundaries. Very often underlies some of these issues. Is a child living in a very frustrating environment that he has a need of a self-soothing escape more than other children? Assuming what he's doing is more in the realm of normal, then the parents have to be told, okay, how exactly to deal with it, uh, you know, how to explain to the child it's inappropriate and you know how to deal with it, I think, is beyond the scope of this. Uh, but I think the main point is what I would like to say is understanding if there's anything else going on beyond that. Yes. Yeah. So again, I, I don't think the guilt that the point I wanted to bring out for what you know how people react differently to different type of transgressions, that very often the emotional reaction has nothing to doesn't really directly relate to the severity of the transgression. Usually, when there's an overreaction and there's like paralyzing guilt, it's not usually because in truth it's just a, a much more uh, egregious act. As I brought the evidence, you know, that sometimes a person, you know, very rarely do people feel this terrible, overwhelming guilt for speaking Lashon Har or speaking in Shul and Davening. 
yet it's very egregious because, so it's really the emotional, you know, why does the child react with, even if it's, even if it's a bad thing to do, being paralyzed with guilt would probably never uh, be helpful. I, I once, a Meshgich once told me, I, I told him about the problem of overwhelming guilt uh, that very often paralyzes people and doesn't, instead of getting better, they get worse. I asked him, you know, is guilt an inherent part of the chuva process? So he told me, well, it depends. If it helps you become, it helps you get better, then it's a part of it. And if it makes you worse, it's not part of it. So then. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Sorotskin. We are going to take a five-minute break to get the PowerPoint and DVDs and everything set up uh, up here. So um, my watch says 1020, and we'll resume at 1025. Thank you. <laughs>